Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to a special giant-sized edition of Wait, What? Comics Podcast for the Savage Critics website. Today, Graham McMillan and I rush to talk about Disney's potential purchase of Marvel before the topic gets all talked out. Rather than break this podcast up, we made it one giant-sized 90-plus minute installment, heavy on the speculative policy walk. If it sounds like the sort of thing you'd rather skip, then you should probably skip it. But if you've got a lot of time to kill and want to kill it with rampant idle speculation and the word Pixar thrown about like rice at a wedding, then Tigger, you've hit the jackpot. We'll continue with future installments of Wait What, Episode 5, later in the week. And, as always, thanks for listening. Graham? Jeffrey Lester. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gramhausen McMillanville. Oh, well done. I do believe you win. <laughs> Not necessarily. You should have seen the, the terrifying list of, of things <laughs> I had to discard up there. But you came through and it counted, and yeah. that's what matters. <laughs> And that's half the battle. Exactly. Thanks, G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, your Sunday's going well, I hope? Uh, actually, better than I expected. Knock on wood. Glad to hear it. Here, here. I just I knocked on some particle board, so hopefully that'll cover it for you. Particle board, it sounds very metallic, it has to be said. Yeah, well, there, there was maybe there was some glass and some metal items. Uh, <laughs> maybe it wasn't particle board. <laughs> maybe but, it was your local robot. I was trying to, like, yeah, exactly, punch through the robot into the particle board. So, same sort of idea, really. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my, um, my not my biggest problem, but my problem that's biggest on my mind right now mm. Do I go to Excalibur Comics, my local comic store, which is having a 50% off all back issues sale again today? Well, after I did it on Friday and got of half of Paul Levitz's Legion of Superheroes run. Or do I fight it and then just go tomorrow? Because I know <laughs> to go. <laughs> That's a good question. I say... Well, I say go today, so that way when you realize there's something else that you need... You can go back it's, tomorrow. It's fifty percent off all back issues. Oh boy, that's rough. And I mean, they have they have good back issues. No, I know it's an impressive back <laughs> issue store. I uh, I'm pretty. So envious. if there's anything you're really, really, really looking for, you should probably tell me, and I can look for it. You know, it's I should really keep one of those little backlist notebooks because I I have you know sort oh, of like oh people had them oh they definitely did oh, as we yeah. said. I've gone for the Levitt's Legion of Superheroes because that's pretty much the only run that I'm actually trying to collect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized there's two issues of Walt Simonson's Orion that I don't have. I should obviously get those, oh. clearly. Clearly. Uh, and then I was thinking, do I hate John Byrne enough not to even sample his run on uh, Fourth World and New Gods? Probably not. And then <laughs> I was deciding that because I've been rereading all the Spider-Man issues uh, recently, mm-hmm. I should really pick up Tom Tafalco and Ron Francis' Thor run. Mm, very nice. That's interesting. The DeFalco, his, the DeFalco run on Thor, I, I had no idea that... I mean, of course, I know he did it and did it for a while. It just never occurred to me to think about picking that up, you know? Well, I, I remember everyone at the time was complaining that it seemed really old-school Marvel. And mm-hmm. to be honest kind of sounds fun, especially if I'm getting them for like 50 cents each, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, for that price, it, it kind of seems uh, impossible to beat. No, I'm trying to think, you know, I a lot of stuff that I've been buying has almost been like buying the stuff that I had when I was a kid, and considering there's now a huge storage space filled with 
the stuff that I had when I was a kid, I got back from my parents. It's kind of hard for me to figure out like what I should be buying, really. Oh, I, I was oh oh what? Oh, I think I do know what I I might want. No, no, I don't want that. What? What? What was it? Well, I'll tell you. I actually kind of enjoyed Jim Starlin's sort of batshit insane post Frank Miller Batman stuff. You know. Um, which culminated in a death in the family, but leading up to it, that whole kind of fight between that, that, uh, the introduction of the KG beast and the Batman versus KG beast. I I say, I love that. What what was it called? 10 nights of the demon or something like that. Or really? Yeah, exactly. I really enjoyed that stuff at the time. Uh, and, and part of me is kind of like, I would pick that stuff up again if it's like, you know, 50 cents. Of yeah, I'll, I'll see how cheap it is and if there are issues. That was, of course, when the, the book was temporarily renamed The New Adventures of Batman. Oh, you're right. That was New Adventures because they had sort of started off with Max Allen Collins and Jason Todd, like, carjacking the Batmobile. And yes. Very quickly, like, went from that direction over to Jim Starlin and uh, Starlin and Aparo just kind of doing a sort of faux Frank Miller batshit insane vibe. Like I said, I, I love the KGB stuff, and it, it'd be kind of interesting to look at some of that, you know? Uh, I, I will I will see if they have that. But, um, I do know that Starlin definitely continued for a few issues after Robin died. Oh, there, really? there are like there are like maybe three or four issues afterwards where he's still writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because he was writing not knowing whether they were going to vote him dead or not, it's like the vaguest, like, I am really sad, but I won't tell you why. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, comics. That's uh, that's pretty great. I'm sure that now, you know, with schedules being what they are, they, in th- well, I'd like to say that in theory they could do this, but considering they couldn't even keep the Aquaman story straight, maybe not, you know? Somewhere, Jeff Jones is probably like, Jeff Lester, after you point to get that out of the last <laughs> <laughs> That's a very lovely. <laughs> well, I know where the next fifteen minutes of the podcast are going. Um, hmm. So, um, should we should we jump right into the Disney Marvel discussion since we're. On our Twitch times table, yes. Let's do it. Should I, do you want to call me back, or should we just do it here, or how do, how are we going to do it, Jeff? No, I think let's just do it here. Like we can sort of leave all that other wonderful stuff, unless you you want it edited out that you you know shop at Excalibur so people don't you know set a trap for you or something. Like, like anyone would really care. <laughs> um, hi there, everyone. I'm in Portland and I shop at Excalibur because it's ten blocks from my house. Now you can also work out. In a 20-block radius. Pretty much. Like, it's pretty exciting. I'm sure people are breaking out their, like, Google Maps and, like, creating a a little area of effect. (laughs) Exactly. The Graham Zone. (laughs) I think we also have the title for the podcast, too, which is a shame. (laughs) Sure, it was going to be something about Marvel and Disney, but no, no, apparently not. Uh, So, so, okay, so what do you think about Marvel and Disney? I mean, do you do you have thoughts? Because I have gone through, I have experienced it in like three different ways this week, <laughs> and I I finally ended up with, I'm not sure I care. Right. 
Yeah, which I think is, I, I don't think that that's a particularly insensible way to be because it's, um, you know, it's one of these, it, it, the absurdity is it's almost like seeing something explode from far off and you're kind of like, oh shit, but you know, it's going to be months before the shockwaves really hit here. So I, I, I tell you, I, I'm not, my main concern, you know, about it, um, well, actually, my main concern is trying to say something pertinent now that it's been pretty much a full week, which uh, is is like a year and a half in internet time now. So, well, the strange thing was, I mean, it broke on Monday, mm-hmm. and no one saw it coming to the point where mm-hmm. I was even emailing other people and being like, "Did you know this was coming?" And everyone's like, "No, we had no idea." And by the way, fuck you, Marvel. I mean, the number of journalists who were actively annoyed. <laughs> Because because it broke with no warning whatsoever, and lots of people were getting pressure from their higher ups saying, "Why don't you know this?" Right, right. Well, um, I mean, and, and and literally, I mean, I was like that. I was kind of like, "Fuck you, Marvel! Fuck you for breaking it at six o'clock, or rather nine o'clock Eastern time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when I am asleep." Because mm-hmm. like I got up an hour and a half later, and already I had so many emails being like Disney Bob Marvel. And the first one I saw, I thought it was a joke. And then you know when you get fifteen of them, you're like, oh shit, it must be serious. Right? Yeah. No. Exactly. It just seemed so unreal at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Completely. It was a very strange. You know, it's like I, I, Edie and I like got up and went to the gym and came back and I turned on. You know, actually, my email. Someone had emailed me the story, and it was. I was like, "Holy cow!" It wasn't even eight a.m. You know, out here, and uh, and this was already underway, and it was, it was pretty shocking. I think that, um, you know, if nothing else, that that in itself is kind of a, a pretty sure sign to um, uh, kind of underscore sort of Marvel. <laughs> Marvel's uh, we don't need anybody position in the industry, which is you know sort of a, a weird, weirdly reinforced by the Disney thing. Um, I guess before we go too far into it, I think the two things that I, I should mention are: I thought that your um, your piece in I and I about what it meant uh, was is super useful reading, as is Hibbs's. Uh, somewhat extended open letter that he ran as a tilting over at comic book resources. Uh, I actually, yeah, I, lo- I loved Brian's open letter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did too. And so I, I think that there's a lot of other great stuff floating around on the internet, but I, I think for anyone who's listening to us now, who sort of want to, you know, know where I'm coming from, those, those are the pieces, those and a few other things are, are, are sort of what helped shape my, my, what I'm currently thinking, which is, I think that Disney made this decision to really nail down a, a big open hole in their licensing, which is, you know, for, you know, young boys from like 9 to 17 or whatever, the, the Marvel library is just going to be a great way to kind of, you know, patch that up. Because they had all the tween and teen girls, I think, but not really any way to keep keep a hold of the, you know, the, the boys after, say, the age of 9 or 10. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's kind of a a big deal for them. And then whether it breaks down into the movies or, you know, the comics or the publishing, I'm not even really sure how important that is to them. I really got the sense the timing of the announcement was very much Disney wanted this um, to sew up 
to, to make themselves look better to their stockholders as a way to sort of address like, hey, this is this is going to be a really good thing for us and our portfolio. Um, you know, we're we are we're closing up the last little hole in our licensing and now we pretty much have, you know, both sexes of kids covered from birth to about the age of seventeen or eighteen or so. What really um I keep coming back to. Well, there's a couple of things I keep coming back to. Is mm-hmm. I think this deal is great for Disney, and ultimately, it's going to really suck for Marvel. I think it does a lot for Disney, and I don't think it does anything for Marvel. I think it turns Marvel into DC mm-hmm. in in all the worst ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that this is going to be what Joe Quesada is going to be remembered for, for good or ill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I kind of feel sorry for him because of that, because I think he said lots of other good things. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that this is going to be what, when people remember his his era's editor-in-chief, he's going to be, he's, he was the one in charge when they sold to Disney. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think the thing that I find kind of fascinating about, about the transition uh, is that... You know, although although Disney is very quick to say, like compare mention like Pixar and the fact that they're super hands off with Pixar, um, you know the 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 fact of the matter is is that they were there's lots of stories where Disney were complete and other assholes with companies that they bought. You know, when yeah, they, here's the thing: everyone keeps talking about Pixar and Marvel keeps talking about Pixar, and it's a completely different situation. Yeah, and it's completely different because when Disney bought Pixar. Pixar's creative officer became Disney's chief creative officer. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that is happening with Marvel. Exactly. Pixar changed the corporate culture at Disney. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Marvel isn't. Marvel is ultimately just going to become another Muppets. Right. Which is which is precisely what I wanted to underscore is when the Disney bought the Muppets, for example, um, they actually completely. Uh, jumped in too fast and started taking, you know, announced things that they didn't have the rights to announce and uh, had put, tried to put the kibosh on projects that the Henson people already had underway. And, and right off the bat, Disney pretty much grabbed them and started doing exactly what it wanted without asking first. And, um, you know, Pixar was backed uh, by a huge chunk of, of Apple money and and also was able to cut a deal, um, you know, like you said, where Lasseter came in and they had someone in place that would essentially not just defend their culture, but would help disseminate it into Disney. Exactly. And, he, he promoted mm-hmm. Pixar into Disney. Exactly. And and even still, you still get little jokes like, isn't there a joke in like, is it two, Toy Story 2 or something where Buzz Lightyear has the Disney thing stamped on his ass or his foot and he says that he can't get it off, you know? Um, because e- even with all that, as I recall, Pixar were not initially happy about having a Buzz Lightyear show and having to do worry about direct-to-video uh, movies, which Disney was... I, I mean, yeah, what, what really... Uh sticks out to me when people say things like, you know, well, Disney didn't do anything to Pixar. Yes, they fucking did. There's Toy mm-hmm. Story and Toy Story 2 are being re-released as a 3D movie yeah. this this fall, which Pixar, you know Pixar wouldn't have done on their own. Uh, I'm not it's, even it's, sure. it's milking the franchise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I... you had Toy Story on ice. <laughs> you know, I you, you literally did. There was Toy Story on ice. And 
Disney has it's not been um, affecting the Pixar product, but that's because Lasseter's in charge of Disney product now, mm-hmm. and also Disney and Pixar were pretty much going for the same thing anyway. Mm-hmm. They were doing it better than Disney, right. but they weren't really pushing any buttons in a way that Marvel will. Well, and and here's the thing. I think that Pixar, what Pixar, the things that Pixar was being pushed on by Disney, I mean, I'm actually going to split hairs with you. I think that what Disney, Disney wanted franchises. I'm not sure that Pixar wanted franchises when they first moved in with Disney. I don't remember if Toy Story 2 was kind of made initially under duress as a, you know, was supposed to be a direct-to-DVD movie that went big that they decided was good enough and is, strong is Toy enough. Story, is Toy Story 2 not pre-Disney acquisition? Um, I'm not sure. It's, this is, this, and this no, is why I should really uh, research uh, this stuff. Before I you. want to say it is. It is? Toy Story, Story 2 came out in uh, 1999 and Pixar hasn't, wasn't known by Disney until 2006-ish? 2006-ish? Really? That sounds later. Well, there, 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 was, there was a deal that Pixar only were bought like in the last few years. Okay. Well, I think I think then what I'm thinking of is the friction that was created during the process of just the deal of the the partnership um, when I guess Disney ended up buying a chunk of Pixar or vice versa. I do know that again there was there was um, oh there's 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 definitely been friction for a long time. Yeah, and Marvel is not nearly as strong enough or big enough uh, as Pixar at this point. It's not even close. So. Um, but but at the same time, it's one of these things. Um, Marvel has always been, or has always positioned itself as the underdog and more aggressive in terms of comic book publishing. Mm-hmm. And does doesn't does Disney really care enough about comic book publishing to push them on that? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to see the pushing happening in the movies, in the cartoons, in the licensing like that? Right. Yeah. I mean, does does really give that much of a shit about Marvel comics? Yeah, I, I get the sense that it doesn't. I think was was it Rich or Heidi who talked about the the fact that Marvel had shored up purchasing a whole bunch of its earlier media properties like the Spider Man TV show and things like that, and bringing it in under their banner right before Disney bought them. You know, you I get the sense that that their priority, Disney's priority, is being able to have Marvel, Marvel product to throw on on its TV and its direct download services. And arguably does not give a crap about the comics, which is why, um, which is why I think Hibbs's letter was fantastic in the way that it underlined all the things that that Marvel's doing screwy, but honestly, like has a very like a snowball chance in hell of being noticed by Disney in any way or them caring, you know. Well, what almost worries me is does Disney? care so little about comics that they're going to cut back in the comics. <laughs> Has Disney bought Marvel to essentially steal the IP and will it pull back on the comic publishing when the comic publishing begins to shrink as it will? Because unless Marvel completely starts raping the market, mm-hmm. then Marvel will eventually, their their market share will fall. I, I just think I just think it's cyclical. I think there's no way that Marvel can keep the market share they have mm-hmm. on a permanent basis. And when the market share falls, will someone at Disney be like, eh, just cancel a few books? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean the thing that's really disturbing is is that Marvel, in in essence, 
uh, I, I got the sense from reading Hibbs's uh, open letter, is almost being rewarded for all of its bad behavior the last couple of years, you know, in terms of the publishing division. You know, the message put forth is if you, you know, raise the prices on your books, if you ship your books, you know, to meet your quarterly demands and, and flood the marketplace and not pay any attention to the effects that you're having, you know, on the direct market, good for you. We're going to give you, you know, billions of dollars, you know. But that, that has been happening for years. That's nothing new. It's not new, but as you pointed out, it is cyclical. And unfortunately, the message at this point in the cycle seems to be a very positive form of reinforcement. I don't see where Marvel is going to look at this and not see it as a sign of like, well, hey, you know, obviously we're doing something right. You know, I mean, it would be great if they don't have anything to sort of prove like they look great now now they can actually sort of ease off the um the accelerator and not be putting out 20 new titles every month or whatever it is um i i just unfortunately i get the sense that they won't be doing that and the thing that very much distresses me is i don't i'm not sure they'll actually be treating their creative uh any better you know this this i'd be great if this marvel deal meant that the people working at marvel uh, you know, either in the offices or or as creative individuals, you know, there's the tippy top strata of of creators that you know have the exclusive deal that's pretty decent, but it's you know it's not necessarily groundbreaking. And there's also a lot of people underneath that. It'd be kind of nice to see people at Marvel get paid something like what Disney pays its individuals. You know. But the the flip side of that is, did you see Rich's piece about Disney's take on intellectual property? Mm-hmm. That just... D- Disney owns everything you do. Yeah, and that literally is unworkable in the current comic climate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. And, and, and if Marvel s- tries to enforce that, mm-hmm. people will leave Marvel. Yeah, completely. I, I, th- that will be an interesting culture clash if mm-hmm. Disney thinks that it can enforce that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it does, then that will kill Marvel. Marvel will literally become the intellectual property farm that is not, not creating anything new. Well, and, and Marvel is the intellectual property farm that is not creating anything new. That, I mean, that's actually, that that's actually what I was going to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. when was the last time they talk about their 5,000 characters, which I think is still a, an incredible overstatement. Yes. But when is the last time Runaways aside that something new and valuable has been created for the mm-hmm. company? Exactly. Uh, and I think it's not going to be a surprise that, that I think the quick quick and dirty answer is when the image guys uh, got up and left Marvel, you know, because they had left in part because they weren't seeing the monies from the things that they'd created back then. So I think that, I think that, you know, you've seen some minor resurrections of interest in creating characters. It it seems like uh, amazing Spider-Man has had, you know, gone out of its way to have some new villains and things, but but generally, we're the you know, like you said, runaways aside, Marvel is recycling its you know IP from the '70s and now the '90s, uh, which were kind of the big heydays of like, hey, let's create stuff. 
you know, and and pretty much that door slammed shut after a bunch of those guys left Image because it just became apparent they were never going to own it and they were never going to see any money from it. So it's been over 15 years where I think Marvel, for the most part, has been kind of um, create, creatively bereft, don't you think? I Yeah, I mean, and what's kind of fascinating for me is, well, a couple of things. The last time I think they really pushed for that was with Tsunami and then mm-hmm the end of James's stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you read, uh, I can't remember their names, the writers who wrote New Mutants and New X-Men. Yes. Um, and their comment that when Dan Buckley replaced Bill James, mm-hmm. one of his um, job, part of his job description was to be less controversial and to, and to stop rocking the boat. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if part of that was you know, to stop anything in you. Well, you know, I, to basically go into what something like Civil War has been and, and uh, Dark Reign and Secret Invasion, which is just well done fan service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think is from what I can tell, the, the James stuff, what was so frustrating about it was uh, they believed in, in trying to create new stuff, but James had his hands all over it. I mean, and you can see, like, this stuff, you know, from from the Ultimate Universe on, he was super, super hands-on in terms of the ideas or Wolverine's origin, for example. Like, his, I, he worked, he, he was not very hands-off. I think Casada's, you know, brought in to be less controversial was very much a, you know, okay, let's have somebody who actually can work with the creators and, and not drive them insane. Unfortunately, right after that was very much kind of a retrenching you know, and sort of a, you know what, let's not focus on new properties, let's focus on making our classic properties great, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, the other thing, sorry, I was going to say, the other thing that interests me is, um, I can't remember where he said it, but Orrin Ellis was very upfront about one of the reasons that he signed his contract with Marvel. One of his job, a part of his job description was repurposing old properties. Yes. That's why he was hired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, Really interesting because it shows that Marvel were already thinking like that. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's interesting that he wasn't hired to create anything new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were already aware that they were not in the business of creating new characters. And even something like um, creating new villains for Spider-Man, there's still Spider-Man villains. You're not going to get a new franchise out of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's There's been no... Runaways aside, there's been no new characters created since... I mean, really, literally after the Image guys left and Marvel expanded with things like Sleepwalker and Darkhawk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the thing that's kind of appalling is, you know, Tsunami was not a particularly big line. It only had about... Six titles. Yeah, you know, in theory, if the Runaways movie does end up getting made sometime in the next six or seven years, I, I think even just from the, the sales... Of the of the trade paperbacks alone, that's actually proven it the line to be a success in theory. Yeah, you know? that 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 getting creative people in and giving them a hand uh, in you know part of the ownership of the property, you can see some pretty good results from that. You know? Does 
Does Vaughn own part of Runaways? Uh, I think he does. I think the tsunami stuff was was a partial, you know, that there's some sort of participation. I don't. I'm not sure if he technically owns it or if it was just created with like a, a greater eye toward uh, a participation structure. But I, I and, and it, it's kind of funny that we're talking about this in the same week that it's pretty much been reported that Runaways is dead as a series. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is is that finally is that finally finally uh, announced? Or? The book the book is definitely not. We're not going to hear an announcement about the book until January, mm. but Eminem and Pacelli are already working on uh, an X Men title now. I see. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's probably dead, and who knows? Maybe that maybe that is not coincidental. Maybe there is some sort of the brakes are being applied uh, to the runaway film franchise, you know, to run out the clock and bring it in under Disney. Like maybe they're like, Hey, you know, cause again, it's that idea of, I, I do think, you know, this is something that you saw me babbling about on, um, on Twitter. I do think that there's a lot of stuff where the, the, um, you know, the Pixar guys are enough fanboys that I think they would be excited to do, something like a Runaways picture or a Ant-Man picture or a Fantastic Four movie that's sort of in the classic style, you know, and it makes a lot of sense for everyone involved to, to maneuver a lot of that material, you know, put place it in a better position so that, that Pixar has a hand at it if they want it. Yeah, I, I just, um, I would be sad for Pixar if they end up doing that. You know, Pixar, to me, in my mind, have been very good at creating properties. If they get into the licensed properties, I mean, I'm I'm one of the few people who's really sad that uh, Andrew Stanton, I think it is, is doing John Carter of Mars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it's like, no! You you create ideas. You don't do someone else's. I don't care how good his John Carter of Mars is going to be. I would rather see him coming up with something. Well, so supposedly, it, as I remember correctly, and I, it, this really is a, a hilarious conversation to be having because I'm I'm not uh, clearly this conversation shows I'm not a Pixar fanboy, but from what I remember, you know, there was all you know the guys who founded Pixar sat down and they had a list of ideas of the movies that they wanted to do, um, and as I recall, Wally was the last one on the list, and there was a lot of trepidation when Wally came out before Wally came out of like, this is kind of the last of the ideas that these guys had walked into Pixar with their own ideas that they'd created during the course of their time in the industry, you know, and they had the chance to, to bring them to life. How much more stuff do they really have? I mean, Pixar is sitting on an unbelievable track record for quality, uh, which puts them under a tremendous amount of pressure as they reach the end of, you know, sort of their, the the founders and the guys who are super high up as their dream projects have sort of taken place, you know, what do they do now? And it might be that licensed properties, on, on the one hand, yes, it's frustrating because that's all that Hollywood has really become lately. Um, but on the other hand, it gives them a little bit of leeway. It gives them some breathing room to try licensed properties and basically have an excuse to fail if it doesn't work out. But if it does work out, it's it can be a way for them to to you know put in a certain amount of money and energy, you know, and bring people up to speed, you know, on on 
again, licensed properties that, but also they're super big fanboys. I mean, it's no surprise. The Incredibles was a Fantastic Four movie in, in everything but uh, actual trademarks, you know? But at the same time, uh, Brad Bird, who did The Incredibles, isn't doing a licensed property. He's going on to work on the 1906 movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think just because they had a certain number of ideas when they went in doesn't mean that they earned some sort of, oh, let them just, you know, get healthy again by working on a, a, a licensed property. And it's, it's, um, it's funny for me to say this because even as I'm saying that, I'm like, it's like Jeff Smith when he finished Bone and Edit Shazam before doing Rassel. Right. But at the same time, I saw no problem with that <laughs> in, in, a, in a way that I do with Pixar. And I, I'm not quite sure why. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think I can understand. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is, is like, okay, so you've got, you've got Pixar. It's going to continue to grow. It's got the guys at the top who are going to have the freedom to do what they want. Like you said, it's kind of surprising that they're doing stuff like John Carter of Mars. But those are things that could be super, you know, they're passionate dream project that they've always wanted to do. And who knows, maybe a lot of these guys have stuff uh, that they wanted to do that are Marvel properties. But even if not, they have a whole bunch of dudes that they have, they have to bring up the next generation of directors and storytellers at Pixar you know, they can't rely on the same three or four directors and continue to have the company grow, I guess. So mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of safety. There's a big safety net of working on a licensed property that's going to draw a certain amount of audience and draw a certain amount of money and, you know, have the chance to find the next Brad Bird. Because, you know, Brad Bird, they were incredibly lucky to to get him. And they were also, you know, I mean, the guys who came, who ended up at Pixar had a real rough and tumble existence in, in Hollywood animation until they, until they got, you know, and formed Pixar. I think they would like to see, maybe they'll see this as a way, um, you know, I, I don't know. It sounds so silly. I'm like, on the other hand, maybe they had no idea either. And, you know, they were checking their email at Monday morning and they went, wow, that's really interesting. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? I, they, maybe they don't give a crap. You know, I, again, I feel like I start, the thing that's so tempting about the Disney Marvel uh, situation is it just encourages so much speculation, you know? Um, which is which is hilarious because when it happened, everyone for like two days was like, the world has changed. And then when you stop and think about it, you realize nothing has. Right. Li- licensing, first of all, is not a done deal. Mm-hmm. It's not even approved yet. Yeah, it's you know, very it, it far away. It might not happen. It mm-hmm. literally might not happen. Yeah. But secondly, the licensing deals basically mean that nothing can change mm-hmm. on any appreciable level for at least five years. Right. You right. know? And, and so the only thing that can really be affected is publishing. And publishing probably Disney aren't going to care about. The, I think everyone's worry is that publishing will be become more conservative or will be shut down. Well, I do think that until the merger happens, you're not going to see any indications of that. You know, no one's going to make noises like that's going to happen because both sides are trying to position this merger as a great move for both of them with nothing changing, right? Yeah, which I find um, both amusing and kind of, I don't know, it it annoys me in a way. (laughs) 
the, the amount of people saying nothing's going to change uh, strikes me as both wishful thinking and both kind of patronizing the way that they keep saying it. Oh, completely, completely. Because obviously things could change. Otherwise, what's the point in doing it? Right, right, exactly. I mean, so, it, well, like I said, there's some very easy, obvious ways and it would be wonderful in a in a moonbeams and sunshine kind of way if if what changed were only only the bad things you know and i and i do appreciate in that sense the fact that hib stepped in like i said if nothing else i appreciate that letter uh is uh, in many ways as succinct an explanation of the things that you find marvel doing wrong in the direct marketplace as you're going to find and in that sense i think it's it's pretty invaluable you know a lot of people seem very like iffy about whether it's going to, you know, the idea that it might actually change something or, or heaven forbid that, you know, it does actually get Disney involved. You know, I think there's a lot of people who worry that the only thing that Disney can really do uh, by entering the direct marketplace and trying to change it is kind of crush things. But Marvel's getting kind of, was getting in, insanely big sh- in the yeah, marketplace Mar- crushing thing. yeah marvel's crushing things anyway yeah exactly <laughs> exactly i mean Mar- marvel puts out so much product now mm-hmm. that um it you know it can't be accidental mm-hmm. there's no way that people at marvel are not aware of the amount of product they're putting out and also what that does mm-hmm mm-hmm um, so I, I think the, the argument that Disney may suddenly come in and act like a bully is ridiculous because Marvel is already there. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And in fact, you know, we'll see every, you know, the people that I know, uh, there's a lot of people making a something's got to give noises, you know, before this was announced anyway. You know, er, like I said, I hope that Marvel lays off the accelerator now, but in a way, why would they? They still have to... Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't see any reason why they would. I don't yeah. see any reason why they would mm-hmm. because it's working for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the fan base is... The, the fan base is a very strange thing for Marvel. I think there's got to be some... There's got to be some level of people who are not enjoying the... You really like the lists? You, you really like Dark Reign? Great, we're going to put out six one-shots in a month. Right. And you should buy them all. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, sales are great. Mm-hmm. And the vocal people are the ones who are supporting it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Even the haters are really easy to write off because they never say, this is the problem. They say, Joe Quesada, you have killed my childhood. Right. Uh, and I'm never reading comics ever again. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to just ignore them because it's like, you're lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, you know... Shut up. Yeah. Um, so you've got this thing where Marvel are completely right in saying we're not going to pay any attention to them. Mm-hmm. But because of that, all they're hearing is you guys are great and the sales figures back it up. Well, see, and it's the sales figures that are the only things that they're listening to and they're going to listen to. Uh, and in some cases, they don't really need to listen to much more than that. You know, I mean, they, they all they need is to turn out an overall profit um, you know, and and some of those books, I can't believe that some of the books aren't actually losing money, even under the direct market structure. But 
who knows? I mean, who knows how much money they're paying people to put out some of these dark rain one shots? Who knows what the break even numbers are? You know, the the old rule of thumb used to be that you had to sell well, old, the recently old rule of thumb was that anything below 11,000 copies was going to be losing money for you. I don't, looking at the sales of stuff that's selling like in the 8,000s and still continues to be published, I can't really see if that's actually true anymore, you know? Like, where is the, where's the break-even point? Where's the, the money-losing point, you know? Um, what I'm well, pressing... I, I think I think we're going to find that out because things like Agents of Atlas being cancelled, I think, is beginning to show a. a I can't even say it's a, a, a conservative nature of Marvel because they just replace it with another X book. You know, there's no conservatism in there at all. Yeah. But you are beginning to see when things are unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, or you see them. Will, yeah, you see them willing to say something. I mean, what's odd is you'll see a split in that something like. I don't know, you know, Daredevil or Ghost Rider, you know, get ganked for selling down at the, in the mid 20,000s, excuse me, the mid 20,000s, which is not really that, you can go much, much lower than that. Um, But then there's other books that sell lower that are allowed to go longer because of some sort of belief that it will pay off. Or maybe just that those creators, the people working on it do not actually cost that much you know, to keep working. That the idea is that if you've got someone if you've got someone like Brew Baker, the num the amount that you're paying him for a year means that you've got to have him work on a book that's going to be selling more than forty thousand copies. Uh and that might be the case for, you know, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily want to name any names, but there could be dudes that are working there on a complete you know, on a complete freelance basis that aren't exclusive, that may be starting out in the marketplace. And you can still have them sell 14,000 copies of a book, and you're still going to be making a profit based on the page rate that you're paying the writers and the artists and everyone to put things together and get it out the door. Um, yeah, I mean, something that really comes into this is the um, Thor getting a dollar cheaper when Straczynski leaves. Right. You know, that dollar was clearly going towards Straczynski, mm-hmm. which is is interesting in and of itself. I mean, are the... And you don't want to name names, but I'm going to name names if only because I have to because of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Someone like Paul Tobin, mm-hmm. um, who's doing the Marvel Adventure titles, which can't have a high um, sell-through rate, mm-hmm. and are two ninety-nine or two fifty, I think. Right. Um, he's not exclusive. I mean, he's exclusive by default because he's not getting monthly work from any other publisher. Right. And because Marvel are. I, I, and I have no idea about his productivity or not, but Mar- he's writing a lot of books for Marvel. Yeah, he is. Absolutely. I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if Marvel were keeping him busy enough. Sure. Um, so he essentially becomes exclusive. Mm-hmm. But Marvel has obviously got to be, and I, I say this as someone who loves his work, horribly underpaying him. Oh, yeah. In, in order to keep the books he is writing profitable. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and that's kind of, to me, that's one of those deals of like, is, you know, uh, I, I wonder to the extent to which these guys sit around and compare paychecks, but, like, is Jeff Parker getting the same deal that Paul Tobin's getting? Is Fred Van Lent getting the same deal that Greg Pak's getting? And, I mean, those guys, in many cases, are co-writing titles together. Um, and, like you said, some of them, you know, how how those dollars all balance out is something that's kind of known at, at the head office. And, like you said, someone like like Tobin, 
The other thing that's fascinating to me is that they're that a lot of those guys, they're like, okay, why don't you write four titles? Why don't you write five? Like, why don't you write five and pitch us a couple of miniseries? Like, Marvel values their work enough to keep giving them work, but there's a very strange... Like, all the books that Marvel are pumping out, it's... I'm trying to figure out if they're why they're doing it to the extent that they're doing it, you know, is it really that they want seven Dark Reign titles out yeah, on the of marketplace? Course, of course they do. Dark Reign is a valuable brand for them. Of course they do. Some of Dark Reign is a valuable brand for them. No, but... Dark Dark Reign as a brand is a valuable brand because of the books with the Dark Reign brand that are selling well. Don't get me wrong. You have Dark Reign Electro, which probably is selling like shit. But that doesn't devalue the Dark Reign brand because to most people, Dark Reign means Avengers and Norman Osborn. Well, see, I personally think that what it is is the the brilliance of the Dark Reign brand, and maybe this is what they learned during Civil War, is you take the brand, you use it up, and then you discard it and you move on to the next brand. If it still has value, you know, uh, it's like when Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2 was announced as Civil War, and I I don't know if it's still the Civil War game or not, if it still has that in in the title anymore. But, um, you know, the idea that you can then turn around and You've got a dark rain. You've got a, you've got. In other words, instead of creating new characters um, or intellectual property, Marvel is sort of creating their events as their new intellectual property. I guess. Yeah, they're definitely concentrating on the brand and the the expanding story, mm-hmm. which I think is going to backfire when that story ends. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because you hear interviews with uh, Quesada or with Bendis or with other people, and they pretty much say the story never ends. Mm -hmm. You know, we can keep doing this forever, but you can't. Mm -hmm. At some point, the story has to end because otherwise the audience are going to catch on that the story is not ending. Well, but that's comic books though, Graham. I mean, how how is the story in the Marvel find Some level of closure and some return to the status quo. There's, Do you not think? No, I, I, it depends on what you mean by a status quo. I mean, it's not I, not that I'm paying attention to the Dark Reign shit, so I have no idea. But I assume, for example, there aren't scrolls still running around for the most part, right? So the secret invasion thing is closed. The Civil War event has closed. Like, you've got the Dark Reign stuff, but, I mean, like, even if you just slap it as a storyline of, like, this is what's happening, I mean, it's not like... Norman Osborn is, you know, essentially running the country and you still have to worry about invading scrolls and you have to worry about Hulk invading. You know, it's kind of what they're thinking. I feel like what they're thinking is, is like once the Marvel Universe becomes its own character, uh, you know, it's just a character like Spider-Man or Thor. You just continue to drag it out as long as possible. Now, Norman, will Norman Osborn like quote unquote get his? Yeah, kind of like something will happen. Dark rain will, but what they'll do is they'll have some new twist that they've got figured out around the corner where it's like, I don't know, you know, the guy who replaces him as Loki. And then you bring in the big Thor Asgard U S war, or, you know, it's just, it's, it's the, I do think they can keep doing it. I think you have to return the characters to, um, if not their original state, then their recognizable state. I think that you can't genuinely have Tony Stark as a retard forever. 
you can't have Steve Rogers dead forever. You can't have Norman Osborn in charge of the Marvel Universe, or for that matter, some bastard in charge of the Marvel Universe forever. That all of these things have to, at some point, end, and or and provide some level of closure, even if that, even if it's Steve Rogers is back, he's Captain America again, but. You know, he has to deal with a new problem. I still think you have to get Steve Rogers back well, as yeah. Captain America. But that's what that's what I mean by an end. At some point, we have to have the story that started with Avengers Disassembled or Disassembled or whatever it was, right? Um, come to a conclusion, and we have to have an Avengers team, which is the recognizable Avengers team that Marvel knows is a recognizable Avengers team because it's the one that it's selling and the one that it's putting in its movies of Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man. In their recognizable, franchise-friendly, license-friendly forms, that's what I mean. Like the stories can, can can continue and always will. That's fine, but at some point you have to hit something resembling a reset button. See, I think what they do is when you do these big events, you just stagger the reset buttons, and and what helps is it gives an artificial feeling of um, closure to the arc that it might not otherwise have. You know, the whole idea that Steve Rogers is going to come back and, you know, basically rally everyone against Norman Osborn and, you know, become this big motivating symbol to, to, to reform America behind him or whatever. You know, maybe they'll do that. Maybe they won't. But, but then they get that piece in, in place and then something else changes again. And then, you know, Tony Stark comes and saves the day. And then it's kind of like when Thor came back at the, at the, well, Clore came into the Civil War and it was kind of like, oh, great, this character's back. It seemed to have a lot of punch to it. I just think that it's going to be, you know, diminishing returns. It seems to be a very slowly diminishing. But my worry is, is that, you know, Dark Reign is selling... 80,000 copies on average as opposed to Civil War, which was selling 120,000 copies on average. And, you know, four years from now when Brubaker's doing, you know, the Spanish-American Civil War uh, or something, it'll be doing 50,000 copies, you know? You were stretching with that Brubaker title. Come on. (laughs) Well, maybe just a tad. Maybe I know something (laughs) you don't. Well, if anyone would tell you, it would be Ed. It has to be said. God love. Yeah, it's true. He would be great. He'd be like, yeah, I'm actually going to make the Spanish into it. Like, don't tell anyone this. But, um, yeah, no, he's, I don't know. But, no, I just I just feel that at some point, um, especially now that they're owned by Disney, who are probably just interested in licensing, mm-hmm. they're going to have to, quickly or slowly, but they're going to have to return to the more uh, publicly aware versions more publicly known versions of the characters mm-hmm. and of the universe and i think something like dark rain um feels like the end of a second act of a story which will ultimately get us to the point where we are pretty much hitting a reset button you know here's my thinking and i could be completely wrong is let's say it takes a year for disney for the disney marvel purchase to go through you get two years um, of Disney having free access to the Marvel characters uh, on bedsheets and 
you know, uh, skateboards and tennis shoes and all the stuff that they want. And they look at the bottom line two years later and they're like, wait a minute. Kids have no awareness of this stuff whatsoever. You know, we have to make them more aware of it by making sure that the entire Marvel Universe is perfectly situated to for the 15 to 16 year old audience then I can maybe see something like what you're talking about happening. But to me, honestly, I think everyone's aware. Comics are kind of a, they're like a super cheap suckers game. You know, it's kind of like they make money. They make a comfortable amount of money. They make enough money that they can get you. They can sort of provide a cushion through a lot of, you know, tough times. But meanwhile, where they're really seeing the money is going to be the Spider-Man TV show. Like, even if it takes five or six years for the for the Marvel movies to start coming out with Disney names slapped in front of it, I think they're going to be fine by that. In other words, what I think what they have to worry about is Marvel films. Like, you know, that, that the Iron Man franchise is suddenly going to be completely dumbed down by the time you get to Iron Man 4 or Iron Man 5. Much more than you have to worry about the idea that they're going to make, you know, the Iron Man, uh, the, the the Avengers comic book be more of an iconic comic book. You, do you see what I'm saying? I, I do, and it, it's, uh, it's interesting you brought up Iron Man because I don't know if you're paying attention to, like, the Disney and Marvel public statements, but pretty much everything they kept saying. They always talked about the IP of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they pretty much continually said, we're looking for the next Iron Man. Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting about that was, Marvel didn't really make Iron Man. John Favreau made Iron Man. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't Marvel culture that made Iron Man. Yeah. And I'm really worried that Disney on some level is missing that point. And they think that every Marvel character has the potential to be Iron Man just because it's a Marvel character. Well, of course. I mean, that's that's what corporations do. They always miss the point that it's an individual's vision that, that, that creates something. You know, it's always the idea that it's somebody's corporate vision that creates something. So, like you said, it's it has nothing to do with the fact that it's John Favreau and the fact that he had to fight to get Robert Downey Jr. on there, that he and Robert Downey Jr. had to fight to get the script changed to what they wanted. You know, it all gets seen at the end as Marvel's super big success and Disney kind of going, yeah, we really like what Marvel's doing. But what Marvel's really doing is they're, they're, they've, they were more than willing to make all kinds of like Pennywise pound foolish uh, decisions with Iron Man that they had to be argued out of, that they were completely like, eh, Robert Downey Jr., maybe we can get one of the guys for Friday Night Lights because he'll only do it for like $2 million, you know? Um, there's so many huge mistakes that Marvel could have made uh, and that Disney could have made, but but the point is is that they always think that it's about the corporation, that it's never about the creators, you know? But do you think, do you, so do you think that's going to be exacerbated by the sale? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a really tough call. I mean, I think that's part of why, you know, I get all starry-eyed and start making noises like, boy, wouldn't it be great if, like, Pixar made a Fantastic Four movie set in 63 using Jack Kirby designs, rather than looking at the reality of it of, you know, Marvel's strength has always been the characters that people that creative people grew up with and wanted to create for, 
you know. And so you get guys, you know, someone like Brubaker love, grew up loving Marvel's characters. There's a lot of us that did. And so I think consequently, those characters, because they still have a hold on us, um, you have a better chance of very creative people coming in and working on them. And whether that's Disney, whether that's Marvel, I don't necessarily think that's going to change. The only thing that's going to change is the idea of how much do the creative people like end up being helped or being hurt by the corporate culture that's in place. Um, you know, the, I, think, I think that uh, in some cases... You know, Warner, Disney, and uh, DC and Warner is a really good thing to sort of look at by contrast. You know, DC has been owned by Warner for a long time, and they've had a horrible, horrible job getting properties made. You know, apart from Batman, and I think they they're going to for quite some time, because you know, ultimately. Uh, a huge studio like Warner Brothers has tons of different production teams. And I honestly believe those production teams will happily slit each other's throat to, to stop one production from being, from getting underway. I mean, a classic example is if you look at the Superman movie that we eventually got with Brandon Routh and you look at everything that led up to it, it's like, I honestly believe that it's this 10 year fascinating backstory of Machiavellian corporate espionage where scripts are leaked projects are announced suddenly projects are like killed because someone else you know it's like Superman versus Batman kills off the J.J. Abrams script but then Superman versus Batman gets killed off by a new Batman movie but then you know you can't even get a character as as interest-free as Green Arrow being made because the stakes are so high for any individual Warner Brothers team to succeed with the property. You know what I'm saying? I I worry that Disney is going to have a potential situation on its hands where you get the Marvel characters and suddenly you have everybody under one tent cutting each other's, you know, slicing off each other's Achilles tendons with, like, rusty razor blades so that they get the chance to make the Thor movie as opposed to having that lovely little kind of, you know, you've got Marvel films and then they work closely with individual companies to put out a product that they feel is kind of close. So once it's at box with a certain production team in place, you don't have a situation where all the other teams at box have a shot at it if that project dies. Whereas, you know, Warner Brothers, it's kind of the idea of like, well, you know, if Wolfgang Peterson's, if John Peters' people can't make this movie, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe Joel Silver's people get a shot at it, you know, and therefore it's in Joel Silver's people's best interest to leak a Superman script on the internet, for example. Not that you're saying anything is legally actionable, of course. Oh, yeah, exactly. I would actually love the idea that I then get sued by Joel Silver. That <laughs> really would be like a perfect roundabout kind of way, you know? It's like, I mean, obviously, if he doesn't But the plus side, like, he couldn't do that because that would then prove your point. Yeah, that like, is he, true. He, he can't say, well, I didn't do that, but fuck you. <laughs> you know, I think considering Joel Silver did not give a shit what Alan Moore said about him, I cannot believe that he would care even two shits uh, about what I was saying to him, saying right now, even if what I was saying wasn't couched in the fact that clearly I know very, very little. Um, So, 
don't know. The, I, do you think that 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 the creative people that that Disney and Marvel uh, that this deal could end up hampering? I guess the attractiveness of creators working at or working f- with Marvel properties. I'm not even sure there's going to be that much crossover. To be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. I I don't think you're going to see. I mean, you may see Pixar people working on working at Marvel Studios, mm-hmm. but I don't think we're ever really going to see a Pixar Marvel cross production. I don't think we'll ever see a Disney Animation Marvel cross production. Right. What I'd like to see is, and I say this with no malice towards Craig Kyle or anyone at Marvel Animation, I'd like to see Marvel Animation brought into either Pixar or Disney animation because I don't see there being any reason for it to exist now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be a case where there's going to be a lot of crossover. I think that for the most part, as long as Disney gets the money, mm-hmm. they will be happy to leave everything as is. I don't think it will be like Warner's where it's, you know, which producer at Warner's is going to fight about DC mm-hmm. because there's no DC movies you know, there's no DC studio, whereas there is a Marvel studio. Mm-hmm. And I think Kevin Feige is smart enough to be territorial about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I, th- I think any crossover will be the talent going to Marvel studio as opposed to Marvel studios ceasing to exist and the Marvel movies being made by other Disney studios. Uh, but do you think... I don't think that the DC would let its talent go to Marvel studios without that talent still being controlled by Disney. Disney, do you? No, but Marvel Studios is going to be controlled by Disney as well. Okay. I mean, for example, for example, John Carter Mars, like we we're talking about Pixar before, isn't a Pixar movie. Mm-hmm. It's a Disney movie. Right. As is the 1906. 19, in fact, no, that's not true. 1906 may be Pixar. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're made by other Disney companies. Right. Um, and I think it'll be a similar thing. Well, see, that's that's sort of the direction that I sort of see things going. Is is that somebody like, uh, uh, you know, the guys at Marvel Animation having a shot to move up and out, sort of up the Mar- up the Disney ladder, potentially, um, whether or not that's something that they actually want, um, you know, more I, I, than I, I, the I think, idea that there's... you're getting, you know, the Pixar people coming to Marvel. I think you're going to get the Marvel people going to Pixar, essentially. Which is is fine, you know. I have got no problem with that, and I, I don't see that was is going to be incredibly helped or hindered by the the ownership. I think if people wanted to jump ship, then they would still be able to jump ship. I guess not true. I guess it will be slightly easier now that they're all under the same corporate umbrella. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't think it will be a massive shift. I don't think we're all of a sudden going to see people just willy nilly going between all the companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just. A lot of the thing about this is I'm still not entirely sure what Disney has bought and also what it thinks it's bought. Well, like I said, I think that what it thinks that it's bought is licensing that is going to help shore itself up with 9 to 18-year-old boys. They don't have a lot of that licensing right now. They get the, they get the money from the existing deals. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they don't really get the product and they won't they won't for a long time unless you're talking minor characters and you've got i mean the way the deals are set up currently Mm -hmm. every 
any character uh, that made a first appearance in the Spider-Man book is Sony's. Any character that made a first appearance in the X-Men book is Fox's. Any character that made a first appearance in Fantastic Four is Fox's. Mm-hmm. That takes a lot of characters out of there. No, it does, but um, but does it? Isn't that for the projects that are rolling forward? Like, can't Disney like turn around and essentially start putting on? MTV's Spider-Man show, you know, or Spider-Man and his amazing friends or the old Fantastic Four cartoons. Well, yeah, it's, it's all, that's, the way it was described to me by someone at Marvel, who I will uh, name, <laughs> is, that, is that for Marvel movies, that's mm-hmm. the way it works. Mm-hmm. For, like, Marvel animation is entirely different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, publishing is publishing, right? Uh, but for the movies, that's the way it works. Right. And movies generally affect live-action TV deals. Mm-hmm. But for animation, it's different, which is how you get the Hulk versus Wolverine movie and stuff like that. Right. So, I mean, if you have all that stuff, and suddenly Disney has a bunch of that stuff that it can show on the Disney Channel or whatever aspect of the Disney Channel is for young boys, now that Power Rangers isn't doing it for them. That's Disney XD, which, you see, that's the other part that's interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Disney rebranded, I can't even remember what channel it was, into Disney XD uh, February of this year uh-huh. with the stated aim of reaching that demographic. Right. And they, they were already going to show a lot of Marvel programming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it may just be that in that sense, Disney does not... Like, they wanted to show Marvel programming, they are showing Marvel programming, and they're just like, hey, you know what, let's own this programming, you know? They own it, they can do whatever they want with it, they're not beholden to... It gives them a certain amount of flexibility in the idea of, if you cut a deal, you know, with Marvel Animation to show Marvel Animated shows on that channel, and six months in, four months in, it's not working pulling those programs and, and up, while having been forced to uphold the contracts is somewhat problematic. If you just own that stuff, it, you have a lot more freedom to, to mix it up, um, I'm assuming. And, and therefore, like, we all act like that's not anything, that's small potatoes compared to the movies, and it, maybe it is, but that is a huge chunk of how Disney has made its nut over the last couple of years once you cre- once you shore up that audience then you can begin the process of creating new content for it that you own and then you know something like high school musical you know comes out of disney's television you know after it had carefully built the in, in other words you build the destination for the age group and then once the age group is there you can start creating, you know, your own original properties there that that hopefully will explode huge, you know? So Disney, you know, may be in the first stages of building its, you know, its channel for, for that demographic. They're going to, attra- you know, use the use the honey of Marvel Animation to draw kids in, but then after that, it becomes their stage of creating their, you know, their new properties, Disney's own own properties, that it's going to turn into massive hits. That you know, with the idea of ma- turning that stuff into the its new IP, ten to fifteen years down the road. You know what I'm saying? Do you think Marvel will be helping create that IP then, or Marvel talent? 
Um, that is a really good question. I think that Marvel, uh, not necessarily, honestly. I mean, I, I wouldn't know how it, it boils down. I think it really depends on how all the pieces fit. You know, ultimately, Disney doesn't necessarily care whether Marvel helps create it or not. It's just, you know, that might make it easier for them to, to create something, but but not necessarily. I think, you know, it's just that same old idea of, like, they don't really care if the people who created iCarly, you know, ended up seeing any, you know, helped them create High School Musical or not, you know. The idea is that ultimately they've got that market share and it's a captive market share. But no, I don't think whether or not Disney ends up uh, feeling any loyalty to Marvel or thinks that Marvel is useful in creating that stuff at all is is kind of up in the air, you know? Then does that not make Marvel an incredibly expensive gateway drug? Uh, yeah. Actually, on paper, it looks like an, an incredibly expensive gateway drug. But I, I don't necessarily think that it actually will prove to be all that expensive in in the long run. I think, at, of course, as time goes on, it looks like a huge chunk of money to, to throw at one thing. But, you know, dressed up, you know, behind all the, the shadows and fog is like, is the idea that it keeps growing and growing and growing. Because 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, it's going to be a great it's going to be a great deal for disney because the spider-man properties you can only shovel so much money for so long you know before it collapses even so like sony's spending so much money now to get another spider-man movie out of Raimi and uh toby mcguire and people who clearly don't want to be there and at some point it's it's just going to be diminishing returns for them. Maybe they'll try to reboot the franchise and then they're going to have trouble putting everything in place. And then, you know, Disney's going to get the ball back. I think, I think for, in terms of a combination of short game and long game by Marvel's great, because by the time you've got the kids, you know, you've got the, all the deals in place for your, for your gateway drug. Maybe at that point you actually get the movies back at that point. And when you've got the X-Men and you've got the chance at, at rebooting that movie franchise as a Disney movie 10 years down the road, I don't know. It looks pretty good to me. I Even if it's not 5,000 characters, <laughs> even if it's more like you know, 50 characters, I think they've got a pretty good shot. How many viable characters do you think have Disney really bought? I know. Isn't that the question? I, I'm kind of shocked that no maybe I just haven't seen it yet, that nobody's actually sat down and put together a list of how many viable characters there actually are. I don't know. What, what's your guess? I'm going, to, I'm going to say at a conservative estimate, no, at a crazy estimate, I'm going to say 80 characters. Really? I yeah. was going to be much higher. I would be much higher than that. Really? How, how I, I, would, I would say they've definitely got around 200. Mm. Yeah, Maybe. Um, uh, but as we said, if, and by viable, I'm including things like Blade may not have made them an awful lot of money, but it made them three movies in a TV show. It, Blade made them a absurd amount of money. I mean, and that's kind four, of the four deal. Four Blades. Mm-hmm. Not even four Blade. I mean, the, the it depends on what you consider. Did it make like $90 million? No, but, well, I mean, $900 no, no, million. But that, no, that, that's, but... that's what I mean. Like, if they're looking for an Iron Man, for mm-hmm. example, I mm-hmm. think I think they're they're not going to have many of those. Yeah. But 
you've got a blade, which really does show that characters who in comics are never going to be a success right. can play outside the, the market. What I think is really going to hold Marvel back is Marvel's all superheroes. Mm-hmm. At best, Marvel is superheroes and science fiction. But right. when the superhero bubble bursts, and it has to, they're fucked. Well, I think that I'll go one step farther. I think actually Marvel has superheroes, and because of its early expansion in the 70s, it has horror slash exploitation. And that's pretty, that's actually pretty successful stuff. That's kind of but, where but, Blade comes but, from. You know, is that expansion? No, I mean, Blade starts off as, comes out of a horror book. And so, you know, that kind of stuff of like Ghost Rider is kind of man thing. Like, it's interesting that a lot of those characters from the 70s are the characters that ended up being made into um, in, into movies. But that's kind of the best that they've got is that weird period of, of the 70s where it's like, if you want science fiction, you've got maybe six characters, you know, Deathlock and Kill Raven and, you know, Skull the Slayer and, you know... Yeah, well, but, but here's the thing. Something like Guardians of the Galaxy uh, in comics is superheroes, but the concept could be science fiction. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You just strip... You can strip the character, the superheroism out of it, and you've got, like, a, a somewhat decent licensed property that you can turn into a, uh, into a movie concept. Same I'm way. looking forward to the Seeker 3000 TV show in that case. <laughs> I mean, you know, why why not? Why wouldn't they? I mean, that's the that's the amazing thing is is that because Blade ended up being a huge hit like right at the birth before there really was a Marvel Studios, really, it kind of gave you this idea of like you can do just about anything, so to speak. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's the thing. Like I think without Blade, mm-hmm. a lot of people maybe may have been thinking this was a much worse deal for Disney than it really was. Mm-hmm. But I, I honestly can't help feel that when the superhero bubble bursts, Marvel in general is going to feel a bit lost. Mm-hmm. But um they run the risk of getting lost within Disney. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I think the thing that to me is really interesting is, is that at some point, they're going to be like, okay, what do you have that's an entry point, you know, for kids that's like like Harry Potter, you know? Like, in other words, Marvel has runaways that it can sort of play as sort of a hybrid that's going to be able to appeal to young audiences, to that, that Harry Potter demographic that looks very sexy um, currently. But, you know... Marvel doesn't really have anything that looks like Twilight. Even when you factor in the Marvel licenses, you know, no one's creating the sparkly, kissy vampire books at Marvel because, again, there's no incentive to create new intellectual properties there. Um, It does make me wonder what's going to happen. Maybe not so much, you know, when when the superhero thing dies and they fall back on, on... the fantasy properties and the horror properties, the weird hybrid stuff, and then maybe they move back to superheroes. Like, what's going to happen when the kids who grew up reading Harry Potter 20 years from now are parents and are trying to steer their kids towards something, you know? At which Spider-Man was just, like, four or five films that they remember kind of fondly, but that's kind of about it, you know what I mean? Well, at the same time, I mean... 
Is that not just when you reboot Harry Potter? Yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. Well, yeah, which, I don't know. And maybe at that point, does Disney have Harry Potter? That shows you how I, Warner's, I am. Warner, right. Warner's have Harry Potter. Yeah, so, I don't know, you know? Um... I just think that there's going, there's going to be a lot of goofiness way, way down the road. Like, all this stuff that's that's in place with Disney and Marvel, um, you know, I think for some for old coots like us, the thing that's great is that this may be the sort of thing that makes sure that Marvel sort of lives longer, I guess, uh, be, sort of becomes, helps guarantee that they'll, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and stuff like that will will live as long as Superman and Batman have, and and maybe will actually be relevant for the next generation, you know, but I do, I kind of worry, like, when you've, when you've already reached the point where Deadpool is, is creating his own franchise, you know, they're talking about that as, as a film franchise, that's pretty much kind of right at the edge of where Marvel's original properties drop off. There's not a lot past 94, 95. And unless you're able to sort of swivel between IPs created in the 60s through the 90s, that there's enough variation there that you can pretty much run the spectrum from, you know, the early naive, twinkly eyed naivete of the 60s to sort of the grim and gritty stuff of the late 80s to the. Uh, I, I definitely think you can, in part because Marvel's never really entirely idealistic and naive. Like, all, all Marvel 60 stuff, for all of its innocence, is really neurotic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I definitely think you can, you can play a darkness in there if you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that it'll be interesting to see. I think that might be the closest thing Marvel has to an Achilles heel. Well, maybe not. You know, they turn around and just, you know, scrape out the, the gritty neurosis stuff, and then you get something like Marvel Superhero Squad. You know, and you've still got the brightly colored costumes. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe it'll it'll never be a problem. These properties will create and recreate themselves over and over again for each new audience. And there's enough of them that it'll never be a problem. It's not like they're not like they're just buying ten characters. Um, what I, I, I would like really to think- see, yes. No, no, you're on your goal. I was just going to say, what I would like to see, what would be great is as a result of this, you know, Marvel ends up treating its creators better. Like, they're not going to get any more freedom. Maybe they can finally start getting, you know, a good wage, which I'm not really sure that they're getting now. I, being very cynical, don't think that's going to happen. I, I No, it's not true. They might get a good wage. I don't think... Anyone at all involved in Broken and Steel looks like let's do it for the guys who create our work for us. No. I, I, I think that was miles away and I can't see any reason why they will necessarily get treated better because of this. No, I agree. I agree. It's really the, the short like it's like Perlmutter is going to be able to hire a French midget and recreate his dream of being Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island. God only knows what everyone else is going to do. You know? Well, as long as there's one upside. So <laughs> um, yeah. On that bombshell. <laughs> Indeed. Well, actually, before we go, let's do that then. What What would be your complete pie in the sky, like this is the absolute, like this will never really happen in reality, but in Graham's fantasy land, what's the best thing that could come out of this? Not the best thing that will, 
but like in like some weird happy fantasy world, what would be the best thing that could come out of this? Um, that Marvel as a company realizes the value of creating new readers and through Disney's distribution finds a way to create new readers. Nice. That's that's great. And yours? The really really just treatment of creators? Uh, you know, creators, you know, again, I make those noises like, oh, wouldn't it be great if you got, you know, I think that, um, you know, get the pants off of Howard the Duck. No, I don't know. I don't, I think that, <laughs> I think that Howard the Duck is, you know, God bless it. Um, I don't think it, as much as other people seem to keep taking a try at it, you know, that aren't Steve Gerber, I think it'd be kind of nice if, if Howard the Duck was just kind of left alone. And my worry is, is that Howard the Duck will never you know, omnibus aside, you know, six or seven years down the road, Disney, even if it's being super hands on off with Marvel and publishing, that somebody will be like, let's not keep this Howard the Duck stuff in print because they're, it's just too loaded. You know, um, is that that's not the best case scenario? I think the best case yeah, scenario. Well, way to go with your best case scenario. Yeah, I know. My best I'm like scenarios. They're going to be censored, and all the dangerous stuff is going to end up at a print. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My worst case scenario with the world will end. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Disney gets a hold of a nuclear bomb that was built by Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, and uh, John Romita for the Marvel bullpen back in 1973. Um, no, I. I There's a movie I want to see. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I think to me, what would be great would be a best case scenario of there being an easier synergy between younger, um, younger kids, I suppose, uh, and comic books. So like you said, that there's a marketplace where kids sort of are led from reading, um, uh, you know, seeing Marvel cartoons to reading Marvel comic books. I think it wouldn't be such a bad thing if, like, just as the Disney Adventures has been, you know, on the racks in supermarkets in digest form, that you get some version of Marvel Adventures that's like that. Uh, the and, irony being, of course, Disney Adventures was cancelled, like, two months ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, but it it lived for a long, long time. I would like to believe that it can come back. Maybe it never um, I think it would be great if Marvel ended up treating the people that work at Marvel more like they're working at a real company and not some sort of like, hey, we're doing it for the kid. You know, it's like, hey, you're working at Marvel and you know, these characters, you can't work on them anywhere else. And besides, we don't have any money anyway kind of aspect. They're going to have to acknowledge that Marvel's going to have to acknowledge the fact of, OK, we have lots of money you should be able to have some of it because you work here. I don't think that'll ever happen. That never seems to happen, but that would be my best case scenario. Yes. The reason I don't think that's going to happen, the reason I don't think that's going to happen is because Marvel's not been cash poor for a while. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and that's not happened yet. Mm -hmm. So why would that happen now? I don't know. I, I I was trying to come up with the best case, you know, an actual happy scenario that didn't involve Howard the Duck being like, you know, banned from libraries for the rest of my natural life. You know, so this was my happy place was the idea that like maybe these people would be treated well. But you're right. They never do. They never do. You're still going to have people, you know, 
like working or interning at Marvel that, you know, probably have to like hold down like some separate gig to get by or, you know, have to hustle, you know, because the idea being that unless you're an editor at Marvel or an editor in chief at Marvel, you know, there's all sorts of strata of people who are kind of like, well, as long as I commute in four hours, you know, I can, I can actually live somewhat comfortably. I don't know. Is that, is that viably a case? I don't know. Um, okay, so here's my question. What's your worst-case scenario from this? Apart from the nuclear bomb built in the 70s by the Marvel bullpen being exploded. No, no, but it, it really is. It's your worst-case scenario that um, that there is going to be censorship? Not conscious censorship, but I guess my worst-case scenario is that sooner or later Disney, because Disney is is a publicly owned and traded company that is even larger than Marvel is. Uh, and for the most part has done its weird way of kind of wiggling out of various political situations. I mean, you know, Disney kind of, unless I'm mistaken, was kind of at the forefront uh, of making sure that there, that people, that people who worked at Disney had domestic rights, you know, for their partners well before, you know, a lot of other companies did and were a little more progressive, you know, like Disney had no trouble having, you know, their parks have like gay and lesbian events, you know, that were for the park itself, you know, closed off the park for special events for um, gay and lesbian companies and things like that. And, and, and were very impervious to censorship. Um, but my worry is, is that sooner or later, there's going to be some point where Disney decides that for for what either Disney's going to decide that for the interest to keep the stock uh, people interested, it's going to be more hands on with Marvel, or the people at Marvel, in order to keep Disney from interfering with Marvel, will will interfere with itself. You know that it'll become this idea of like there's nothing that we can put out here that Disney, that we can't have being displayed in a Main Street, you know, the shop on Main Street at Disneyland. Like, even though that's not anything official, somebody unofficially is going to be like, you know what, we totally cannot have... Kind of like Joe Casado was like, you know what, you can't have Marvel characters smoke pretty soon, you know, which is totally self-imposed. When, you, when you're being owned by Disney, maybe it's very easy to say that nobody gets killed, you know, five or ten years down the line. Like and not in a oh you know killed in a colossus way, but is in like Wolverine can't you can't really show him stabbing anybody anymore kind of way. Yeah, I I think um, I think that's that's pretty much what I'm concerned about. The, uh, but in a more I'm concerned about I think in a more generalized format, which is I'm worried that worst case scenario, Marvel is going to become a personification of all the jokes and cliches about DC and Time Warner. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't... That's funny. I, I can see that being a worst-case scenario. I don't think that's going to be the scenario because I see that, you know, I don't know. It's it's already in place. I think what's going to be sad is, is that Marvel will become a different form of parody, which is going to be the company that always second-guesses itself to its detriment. I don't know. Is that is that what DC is or does? Do you think? I mean, which I, I, I think of DC so. I, I I think I think the DC completely second guesses itself. Not necessarily because of Warner, but uh, in general, I think DC overthinks and Marvel underthinks. 
Right. And I think I think the DC, uh, I think that Marvel is a very greedy company um, mm-hmm. in terms of presence and in terms of uh, just the amount of, of work they put out, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think that DC isn't. I think that DC could be greedier, but at the same time, you know, then they do things like there's twenty Black as Night crossovers, and you've got to order fifty to get rings, you know, and they're right. like, oh. Really, fuck you. Yeah, fuck but um, yeah. but at the same time, I, I I think that I think that DC definitely has, for better or worse, a much more complicated approval system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I would be worried if Marvel's Marvel gets as complicated and loses its speed. I th- um, I think I could see it sort of being kind of the opposite that Marvel becomes greedier and learns to and underthinks even more you know because if you think about it they've got no worries about wiping out the marketplace in a way you know i i don't they, they don't want to wipe out the marketplace they just want to literally own the marketplace we'll see exactly <laughs> exactly i don't think they want to necessarily but but yeah i do think that if there if there is a situation where the goose ends up being killed for golden eggs, I think it will be more likely that Marvel would do it. And I think that there's a very good chance that now that they've got the backing that they do, it'll be really tempting for them to, to push that more. But Well, I, I still am very curious as to whether Marvel's going to stay with Diamond. Right. That's that's the sort of the t- to me. If, if, this, if, this turns into, if this turns into Heroes World 2, mm-hmm. then I would be fascinated and horrified. <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd be horrified mostly because no one learned from the first one. But <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I, I really think that it will be. Um, I, I think it's a possibility. I think it's a possibility that Disney is, and Marvel are going to think we can do better with our own distribution. Well, they certainly are going to think that with the book distribution. I do yes. think. I think that that's pretty much you know fait accompli. Uh, and and Hibbs, I think, made. I think he talks about that in the letter. You know, did Diamond opened up a huge, huge warehouse processing facility for handling all sorts of stuff. I'm sure that a certain amount of that was thinking that it was going to be Marvel trade paperbacks. Like Marvel is pretty inconsistent with its book publishing program, but it does make money with it. You know, and Diamond was probably counting on being able to make more of that money with it. You know. Um, I don't. I don't think that it's any sort of crucial. Yeah, and and it would be. Yes. Okay. Oh, sorry. I, I it, it went silent in the middle of you saying something. I thought that uh, we'd lost each other. Um, <laughs> I I do think that um, Disney because Disney has its own book distribution deal. That that's where Marvel's going to go. Exactly. But I I'm wondering if that's going to affect the periodicals as well. Right. Well, and this is this. I'm sure a retailer again, like like Hibbs, which is why so sorry we couldn't get him in here, um, might have a completely different take on this. On his worst case scenario, could be you know a, a domino type situation uh, where it's like you know Disney Marvel pulls their book distribution to go with Disney's distribution deal. Diamond had over leveraged itself with its new warehouse property and has kind of been in the weeds generally anyway and is so over- suddenly 
overextended and does not have the income, the revenue being counted on from from the Marvel book deal uh, monies, it starts to go under. DC pulls the option to buy Diamond to keep Diamond from going under. Marvel then decides to pull out of Diamond distribution because DC has then bought it. You know, I mean that's a that's a pretty ugly, you know, set of of chain chain reactions that that could happen. It seems very unlikely that Diamond is you know makes enough money off of Marvel's book distribution that that's going to kill it, but. You can you can see a situation where depending on how over leveraged some of the players are, something like that could happen and change things very very quickly in a very short amount of time. You know, and yeah. in that case, you don't even really need like Marvel decides to do a Heroes World situation. It's just suddenly a thing of like Marvel feels like it has to pull out because DC's bought Diamond because Diamond is you know is in the process of crumbling because Marvel ends up pulling in with DC's book distribution who knows you know steve steve jeppy is not in the in the best financial straits these days we're assuming that diamond is in better but hmm, you know <laughs> so basically we're back to the end of the world yeah I'm, I'm a very big fan of these scenarios graham as you can tell i just sort of sit around with little charts and like what if the polar ice caps melt and then howard the duck goes out of print and then can't come back into print because everyone's underwater yeah i don't know <laughs> Isn't that the plot of 2012? Is it? Oh, my. Oh, I'm in trouble now. Uh, Roland Emmerich's going to be knocking on my door right next to Joel Silver. Like, you know, take him out. This man is causing too much trouble. Um, your, your house is, is the center of, um, of Hollywood's disputes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so in theory, I think we could probably stop talking if you wanted, unless you've got a few points, because I, I feel like I babbled for a little. No, I, 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 I not only do not have a few points, um, I've also just got an email from my wife telling me that I'm um, actually asking, will this podcast podcast take up your, the rest of your life like last time? <laughs> 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 <laughs>